Welcome to Grid Talk, a series of conversations with the leaders and innovators shaping the 21st century grid. Hosting the podcast is Marty Rosenberg, an award-winning energy journalist. The series is sponsored by the Department of Energy's Office of Electricity Advanced Grid Research Division. Now, here's Marty Rosenberg with Grid Talk. Hi, welcome to Grid Talk. We're very pleased today to have Ben Folk, the chairman and CEO of Excel Energy. Excel, of course, has a major presence in Colorado, Minnesota, but also has operations in Michigan, New Mexico, North Dakota, South Dakota, Texas, and Wisconsin. Hi, Ben. Hi, Marty. How are you? Good. Did I miss anything? I don't think so. Okay. I'd like to start off by talking to you about microgrids, which has been a major effort on your company's part. Uh, Going back to the Pena Station Next program, 382 acres near the airport, it's been in operation for several years. What would you say are some of the key insights you've learned from that effort? Well, thanks, Marty, because we, we do want to see the role that microgrids can play, you know, on the bigger grid, supporting the bigger grid. I would say that what we're learning is just that, how we can integrate microgrids into the to the larger grid and do that uh, seamlessly. You know, when I think about the role of microgrids and uh, the Pena project will help us with that, as will some additional pilot programs that have been approved in Colorado. I see it uh, generally as part of a community resilience uh, type of initiative. You know, that added security that in event of a disruption uh, from what, whatever the case might be, that the community can continue to provide critical power. So, uh, in addition to Pena, we have other uh, projects under works to uh, to test that resiliency. And again, what we're learning is how to best integrate. Uh, and uh, coordinate with the bigger grid. One of the innovations, I I believe, is uh, working with some uh, cutting-edge NREL software to both um, integrate the building load management level and the district distribution system models. Tell us how that works, and tell us a little bit about the makeup of that microgrid. You've got a major installation there, uh, from Panasonic, correct, and, and some other facilities. It's also described as a transportation hub. Yeah, Marty and Panasonic's been a great partner in this. This is, you know, primarily uh, it, the power here is, is, as you can imagine, battery power uh, supported with renewables. Um, and of course, you know, I think the integration of EVs into microgrids and into the, the big grid, for that matter, is a big part of, of what the future energy grid would look like. Um, you know, the software that you speak to, again, is what I alluded to previously, and it's to support the integration and and into the bigger grid and really understand what's happening within the microgrid uh, um, so that, uh, you know, so that we can get the most efficiency out of the microgrid. More specifics than that, I'm probably uh, I'm probably a bit over my skis if I try to tell you how the, the, the software actually works in, in more specific terms than what I outlined generally. So my understanding is you're moving beyond this project and you have plans for seven microgrids, a uh, $23 million project that sh- should start in the fall, or excuse me, in January 2021. Is that right? That's right. It's actually a $24 million pilot program with seven different uh, 
we're in the early stages of it, but seven different projects, um, testing all sorts of things. And again, it's around that resiliency. For example, DIA, the airport, will be one of those pilot programs. If you can imagine the importance of, of having power on at all times for some place like an airport. So we're really excited about it. Uh, there is one project out of the seven that is probably less resiliency uh, and more oriented towards uh, whether a microgrid could uh, defer some more traditional investment in distribution infrastructure. So we're going to learn a lot, just like we have from the Pena um, project, and we'll continue to take that and uh, and I think be better informed of, of what role and at what cost, by the way, that microgrids can can and will play a role in, in the, the grid going forward. My understanding is these seven represent diverse uh, utilizations from a middle school to cities to cultural centers as well as the airport. Um, do you think the applicability is going to be broadly diverse or are there certain core principles of what you're trying to achieve with each one of these demonstrations? For the most part, it's about resilience. It's it, with the exception of the cultural center in Arvada that, that I mentioned to you, which is more of a test of what not uh, we can defer more traditional investment by having the microgrid there, avoiding distribution investment in that particular area. The other ones are all centered around uh, making sure that the, in the case of the airport, power stays on. Uh, there's also one in, in downtown Denver that's really designed to, to make sure that uh, people in jeopardy, um, low-income uh, folks, uh, have a, a safe place to go in the event of a major outage. So they, they might be for different reasons, but the theme is all around resiliency and making sure that even though obviously the grid's very reliable, there are certain times where I think a community or a business or, or a municipality might have a desire uh, for enhanced reliability. And by the way, uh, Marty, it's not just in Colorado that we're looking at this. We're doing that across all of our service uh, uh, districts. And, and in some cases, we're working with uh, forts and the military and, um, to enhance their resiliency which you, uh, is clearly is very important to the military. That point's well taken, but, but one more question about Colorado. My understanding is uh, two years ago, there was a law enacted for, uh, to encourage utilities or enable utilities to develop up to 50 megawatts of storage. Storage is a key component of these microgrids. And, and I just wonder, what is the takeaway that, the industry and your customers should take from the scale of this effort compared to, say, a California, which has a mandate to develop 1,325 megawatts of storage by 2024? Well, I think it's about really going slow uh, and understanding through these pilot programs and these smaller initiatives exactly what the role of, of battery technology can be. Uh, you know, I, I think batteries are going to play a big role in the grid, Marty, but I also think that there's limitations. You know, I mean, the the cost of batteries have come down. That's great. But, you know, one of the things I'm advocating for is that we need to start investing today in technologies that will get that last 20 percent of carbon off the grid. And, and, and the reality is we can't reliably run a grid with uh, renewables with battery backup for many, many different reasons, including the seasonal nature of renewables, et cetera. So 
they definitely will play a role and they have multiple uses. And I think we'll understand that better through the use of these pilot programs. And I think we will be better informed to make larger investments in battery technology going forward. So a little bit different philosophy, I suppose, between the two states. Mm-hmm. So uh, this June, you became chairman of the Edison Electric Institute. Um, and putting on that hat for a second, as well as your role at Excel, these innovations in technology on microgrids, for example, that your team is developing, are you on the cutting edge? And how fast do you see this technology spreading and these demonstrations popping up in other sister utilities around the country? Well, Marty, I think Excel is on the cutting edge of carbon reduction. And you're, I'm sure, very familiar with our steel for fuel programs. Our, we were the first utility to announce a carbon-free goal by 2050 and an 80% carbon reduction uh, by 2030. I, I, by the way, many of my colleague companies have announced similar aggressive goals. Uh, we've already achieved a 44% carbon reduction at the end of 2019. But there are two other principles that go with that. The product has to be affordable and it has to be reliable. I think microgrids will play an increasing role um, in, in delivering energy in the future. But I also believe that they will always come at additional cost. So again, I go back to the, the communities and the businesses and the very stakeholders that need that extra resiliency and quite frankly, uh, might be willing to pay for it. And of course, we can support that. We can understand what sort of uh, infrastructure investments that microgrid might help us avoid and make sure that that is you know, in partnership with the, the community. Uh, but I, I don't believe that microgrids will be the principal uh, avenue to achieving these really aggressive carbon reduction goals. Uh, they'll play a role. And again, I think their role is really around resiliency, which of course in modern society is more important than ever. So I don't know if I'm giving you a full answer to that, Marty, but the technologies that I think about to get that last 20% out are things like the hydrogen development of of hydrogen uh, fuel uh, as both uh, a fuel and storage, uh, advanced nuclear carbon capture, uh, dispatchable renewable generation, and of course, additional storage and and demand-side management type opportunities. And those are the things I think we have to start investing today. And that's really... Uh, one of the three key initiatives that I want to lead uh, as uh, chair of EI uh, for this next year. You get about uh, a quarter of your energy now from coal generation. Do you see that staying up? You've got some retirement plans. Is that percentage going to go down? And, and how fast do you think carbon capture will become a viable uh, tool for you? I don't know if carbon capture will be our answer. You know, it could be advanced nuclear, it could be hydrogen, but I think we need to invest in that technology and then let the economics drive it. In your question to coal, you know, I ultimately think we'll be um, very close to being out of coal um, by the end of this decade with the announced retirements and, and things that I anticipate might come out of the various resource planning processes that we're, that we're undergoing. Uh, we'll need to make sure that we don't sacrifice reliability as we move away from coal. I think natural gas needs to continue to play a significant role in providing that reliability. And the interesting thing is, Marty, under our steel for fuel uh, initiatives, we 
We don't use the gas plants as much as you might think, but they're there for backup. And we are using as much energy as we can from renewable sources, wind and solar, because that energy is is less expensive uh, than natural gas, even with low natural gas prices today. But uh, gas as as a reliability backstop will have to play, I think, a big role until we develop those technologies that'll get that last 20 percent out. Wind is about a fifth of, of your generation now, solar 3%. You've moved very aggressively into wind with 12 wind farms in seven states. Do you think that 20, 21% is the upper limit for wind and 3% for solar, or do you see those percentages growing? Oh, no, I see them growing significantly. In fact, I think uh, by the middle of this decade, wind will be the largest uh, energy source on our system and if you fast forward to 2030, we are probably looking at uh, wind and solar at about uh, 60%, uh, roughly. I mean, things can change, but roughly uh, on our system by 2030. So by far, it will be the largest energy source uh, on the grid. Um, and um, again, we'll have almost completely exited coal and you know, we'll be using gas as backup and preserving our existing nuclear fleet in the upper Midwest. So yeah, you can have a lot more, we'll have a lot more wind in just a few short years uh, on our system. When you mentioned advanced nuclear, are, are you referring to modular smaller units or possibly uh, fusion or what's your vision of advanced nuclear technology? Well, <laughs> fusion would be great, but um, um, I haven't seen any kind of realistic time frame for that, but but what I really think the opportunity is is with smaller modular uh, nuclear uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, you know the the, the, the passive safety uh, uh, design, the the capital outlays that make it uh, plausible, the ability to, to uh, have most of it completed in factory. Those are all things that are interesting to me, and of course, you know, I again. Right now, uh, nuclear is the only carbon-free dispatchable resource, and I think it's important uh, that we preserve the existing nuclear fleet and seriously invest in what could be the next generation of nuclear. But again, if hydrogen is a, uh, turns out to be more economic, that's great. If carbon capture turns out to be more economic, that's great, too. Uh, if there's something on the drawing board that we're not even thinking of, that's fine as well. But I think we need to, you know, we need to invest today to be able to achieve the goals that I think we all want to have. And of course, we have the zero carbon goal by 2050. Ben, you've become chairman of EEI uh, right in the middle of the worst health crisis in a century in this country. How are utilities uh, faring both operationally in terms of their workforces and uh, financially in terms of the economic downturn and the impact it might have on, on sister utilities around the country? Yeah, it's a really good question, Marty. There's obviously been a financial impact, uh, uh, the reduction of sales. And, uh, you know, at Excel, we, we've anticipated that. Uh, many of my colleague companies have as well. And most of us, including Excel, believe we can offset the majority of those costs uh, or the revenue reductions through cost reductions. At Excel, we're in the midst of a uh, multi-year continuous improvement effort, and we're really trying to accelerate those efforts. And I think it's really bearing fruit for us. 
many utilities are, are working with their commissions to get deferrals so that a bad debt expense becomes uh, too hard to manage. We could we could get some additional recovery associated with that. In terms of reliability, um, you know, that's going to vary. First of all, reliability has stayed where it needs to be, but uh, some utilities have had workers uh, on premise um, so that uh, those critical workers can continue to do the, the great jobs that they're doing. We haven't had to do that at Excel Energy yet, um, but uh, we're prepared to do that. And I am in constant touch, not only with the industry, but internally just making sure that we are uh, monitoring all the conditions and responding to it so that the lights do stay on and reliability remains high. And again, I, I like to just do a, a shout out to the workers, those critical workers that are out there each and every day, either out in the field or working on the grid or keeping our power plants running. Uh, they're making extraordinary sacrifices, and uh, I think we all should be proud of them. What would you say is the percentage of your workforce working remotely from home? It's about 50-50 right now. Uh, so uh, half of our uh, workforce is working remotely. And, you know, it's interesting. We had plans to uh, begin having offering some work at home options. Uh, and, of course, we had to implement those plans within a week. And it's worked surprisingly well. There's a few folks, maybe 20% of that uh, of that 50% that I mentioned, uh, that are not as efficient working from home. Uh, those are the ones that we will carefully and cautiously think about bringing back first. It's a lot harder, you think, to bring people back safely than you might imagine, But and we're working through that. So we'll, we will be conservative with how we bring people back. But by and large, I've been really, really excited about it. And I think uh, going forward post-COVID-19, I think it'll be an important um, uh, an important option you're going to need to uh, offer employees to to attract and retain uh, great employees. Mm-hmm. Then the last question I want to ask you is your ambitious goal to get an 80% reduction in your carbon footprint in the next decade. How will the business of Excel Energy look differently? How will your business model change? What new activities are you going to be launching? What growth opportunities do you see? Well, the good news, Marty, is we believe with the existing technologies today, we can achieve that 80% carbon reduction by 2030 um, and keep our prices at or below uh, the level of inflation and and maintain high reliability. So, as I mentioned, uh, we will continue to add more renewables into our mix. We'll begin uh, aggressively exiting coal, uh, gas, and backup. But at the same time, uh, we also want to develop more options for our customers. Customers want to understand more increasingly where their energy is coming from. They want different billing options. They want you to assist with them on uh, on electric vehicles. And we've got some great programs that that'll, that basically allow for a more seamless transaction for customers that are electing to buy an EV and, and then giving them billing opportunities that help them save money and actually support the entire grid. So as you integrate more renewables, we're going to want to, I think, uh, uh, offer customers different ways that they can take their energy and at the same time encourage the load shifting and things like that to better incorporate renewable energy. Uh, I think, uh, and this has only been accelerated with COVID-19, I think customers are increasingly looking for more and more digital interaction. And we are in the midst of uh, really 
ramping up and transforming the entire customer experience for the good and really excited about that. And I think uh, at the same time, uh, our customers will expect us to continue to support our communities. And we have very aggressive plans to do that, um, building on the platform we've already established. So you put all that together and it's a much more customer-centric focus 10 years from now than it is today, or, and we're much more customer-centric focused than we were 10 years ago. So uh, that that experience, I think, will continue to, to grow, and hopefully uh, we continue to delight our customers. Great. Thank you, Ben. Thanks, Marty. It's been a pleasure. And thanks for listening to Grid Talk. Thanks to our guest, Ben Folk, the chairman and CEO of Excel Energy, for sharing his insights about changes in his company and in his industry. You have been listening to Grid Talk. You can send feedback or questions to us at gridtalk at nrel.gov. We encourage you to give the podcast a rating or review on your favorite podcast platform. For more information about this series, please visit smartgrid.gov. Thanks for listening to Grid Talk, presented by the U.S. Department of Energy, Office of Electricity, Advanced Grid Research Division. Subscribe through your favorite podcast provider or visit smartgrid.gov for more information.